All right. Yeah, I got to follow that. Zach preached half my sermon, to be honest with you. I, I think he, he looked at my outline, actually, and uh, stole some of it. So I'm going to take credit for that. No, okay. <laughs> Grab your Bible. Second Corinthians. Those of you who are familiar with Secret Church, I think we're going to try to do this at Secret Church speed. Okay, so that is my plan this morning. So grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to read through 2, 4. And that's a long passage, long outline. We're just going to see what happens. Let's go for it. So here's the setting. We've been studying 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth. And he's writing this letter after receiving good news from them because he'd had a lot of bad news with them. You may remember 1 Corinthians. He's writing that letter to the church, struggling with a lot of sin, a lot of issues going on in that church. They don't respond that well to 1 Corinthians. There's a showdown, so to speak, between Paul and the church. That also does not go down very well. Then Paul writes them what's called the severe letter. We don't have that, but it's a very harsh letter, very direct letter, very repent or burn in hell sort of letter. We don't know what it said, but that's the the notion is that it was a very harsh, strong letter. Then eventually, they receive the letter, they repent, they turn back to the Lord, consequently back to Paul. Paul receives word that they have changed their minds regarding him and his ministry, and then he writes 2 Corinthians to them right before he comes to visit the church personally. That's where we're at. So he's in a good mood writing this letter after having been in a very dark, depressing time. And you remember from last week, we talked about whether or not God would put a burden on us beyond what we could bear and how that's exactly what God did to Paul. He received a burden so great that he despaired even of life, but that was for his good so that he could be reminded that God raises the dead. Now, we're transitioning into a fairly lengthy defense of a decision. Now, have you ever had to change your mind? You told someone you were going to do something, and then, I don't know if you've done this, I do this all the time, unfortunately, so I'm asking for pre-grace or prevenient grace um, with all of you. I double book from time to time. Anybody ever done that? Yeah, I'm totally good for Friday. Let's do Friday. And then I talk to my wife. She's like, we already have plans on Friday. And now I have to undo the plans I made, and it makes me look like a careless, fickle, maybe flaky person. All right, anybody been there? Maybe you had that experience with me. I'm sorry. All right, you've done it. I do it all the time. All right, Paul is dealing with a scenario where it looks like he was flaky. It looks like he was being fickle, and he's defending himself because undoubtedly the false apostles that were in Corinth used that scenario to reinforce their belief that he was a false apostle. They were saying, see, Paul said he was coming to visit, and then he changed his mind, didn't come to visit. You see, he's not keeping his word. He, he said one thing, and he did another. He has falsified the truth. He is a liar. He's breaking the commandment. And Paul is writing back to say, no, that's not what's happening. That's not what I did. So let's dive in and see. We'll walk through the whole scenario, then we're going to come back and break it down. So First Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. It says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. So does Paul feel like he wronged 
the church at Corinth with regard to this decision. He's saying, no, I have an absolute confidence in my conscience with regard to this decision. Furthermore, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but rather by the grace of God. So what he did in changing his mind, because he clearly changed his mind. He had one decision that he said he was going to do, then he did not do that thing and did something else instead. And he's saying he has an absolutely clear conscience about making that decision. Verse 13, for we are not writing to you anything other than that what you read and acknowledge. You don't have to read between the lines to see what he's saying. He's being direct. He's being sincere. He's being truthful. And I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So when he says, on the day of our Lord Jesus, what is that a direct reference to? This is the resurrection. This is that great day, the blessed hope, the glorious day that is coming. He referenced it already in 1 Corinthians. He ended, sorry, he ended 1 Corinthians by talking about the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, it's already come up two times so far. So this is our third direct reference to the resurrection. We'll see continually throughout the letter, the resurrection will serve as a formal pinnacle point for Paul's ministry. It's all working towards that day, and that's going to matter in how we put this together. So he's saying that when we get to the other side and you see the narrative, you'll look at my decision and say, okay, Paul, you made the right call. Does that make sense? He's defending himself. He's not wavering here. He's saying, I did it right. Yes, I said one thing and I did something else, but that's because the first thing I said was dumb and the thing I did was better. Does that make sense? That's basically what he's saying. God knows this. He saw my heart. You will see this when you see it from our perspective. On the other side, on that day, you'll see the narrative and you'll say, yes, Paul, you made the right call. Everybody with me so far? That's all a setup, verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. We could say a double experience of grace. Well, what does he mean? I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to, to Judea. So when this happens, he's in a place called Ephesus. Have you heard of Ephesus? We do have a book of the Bible that's named after the church there. And what do we call that book? Ephesians. Very good. While he's in Ephesus, so this is jogging your memory some, this is while he has the experience um, the severe persecution, the, the riot that breaks out. He ends up, it goes very poorly, and he has to leave Ephesus. Now, his plan is already set in motion at that point. We see that in Acts. You can go back and turn in Acts. I think it's around chapter 19, maybe the end of 18. He says, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Greece to collect an offering, to take that offering back to Jerusalem. That's Paul's plan. So people call that the third missionary journey. It's really an offering. He's going through the churches, raising money to support the persecuted church in Jerusalem. So he's got that plan. So from Ephesus, his original plan, so let's see, do this on a map. Here's Ephesus. There's a body of water here. What is that, the Aegean Sea, Aegeatic Sea? Who knows? I think it's Aegean. 
between Asia and Greece. Anybody know for sure? No, I'm confused. Aegean. Aegean Sea right here. Here's Ephesus. Aegean Sea. Here's Greece. Corinth is in Greece. So his plan was to cross the sea, go to Corinth, visit them, then go to Macedonia to get the money, and then come back down to Corinth, and then back to Ephesus and down to Jerusalem. Y'all follow the plan? So in that plan, how many times would he end up in Corinth? Twice. So the message he said was, I'm going to go to Corinth twice. Well, the problem is, while he's making these plans, Titus has not come back with the letter saying that they repented. So as far as Paul knows, if he goes right now straight to Corinth, rather than up to Macedonia and down, so it's this instead of this. Does that make sense? If you look at a map, it'll make total sense. So he knows if he goes right now straight to Corinth, as far as he knows, it's going to be a horrible, ugly visit. Have you ever really not wanted to talk to someone? There's something you got to talk about, something you got to deal with, but you, you know what, they're sick today? Oh, good. I don't have to go. All right, that's the temptation that I'm sure is going on in Paul's mind, and that's probably exactly what he's being accused of by the church at Corinth. They're saying, oh, we know why you're not coming. We know, because you don't want to get you know, beat up again. Last time he was there, he was ridiculed by the whole church, but he knows he sent that severe letter, and he really needs to follow up with it and go there. He wants to be there, so he told them, I'm coming, then I'm going to go to Macedonia, then I'm coming back. But what's he end up doing? He avoids going to Corinth. He goes to Macedonia first, and then finds out they repented. And now, from when he's writing the letter, he hadn't gone down to Corinth yet, but that's where he's about to go. And then from there, he writes Romans, beautiful reconciliation, wonderful story, future to 2 Corinthians. But that's Paul's scenario. He said he was coming first. He did not go first, but now he's received word that they had repented. So here's the question in verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? So some translations would say, was I being fickle? Another translation would say, did I do this lightly? Now when we say lightly, literally the Greek here does mean lightly. That's someone's literal rendering. Um, when we treat something lightly, what's it saying? What's the question at hand? Are you, are you taking this serious? Is this a heavy matter to you or is this a light matter to you? That's the question. Is he vacillating from one thing to the other? Is he having a hard time making up his mind? Is he treating this like, uh, you know, this isn't that big a deal. Let me put this on the back burner, and maybe when it cools down, I'll deal with it, because it's not my priority right now. What's he doing? How is he treating the church at Corinth? He says, do I make my plans according to the flesh, as opposed to according to the Spirit, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? Now, that's a very clear statement. Y'all know what that's. You're, you're saying yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But in the back of your mind, you know, no, I'm definitely not. Definitely not going to happen. I'm saying yes right now, and then I'll figure out the excuse later, and then I'll call you back and tell you what the excuse is so I can cancel. Now, tell me you've done that before. Nobody's going to own it up right now. Maybe two people. All right, right there. He's like, yep, I've done that. We, we've done that. You've had it done to you, and you knew that's what happened, too. You knew when they said yes, they meant no. All right? That's what Paul's saying. I did not do that. So he's asking this question. The Greek language has this interesting thing um, that we, unfortunately, don't have in English. 
And in Greek, you can ask a question and give the answer at the same time. So he uses this in the form where the answer is no. Did I treat this fickle? Did I do this according to the flesh? There's no question in the Greek about what the answer is. And what do you think the answer is? No, absolutely not. I did not do that in this scenario. And so if you're listening to this saying, what in the world, how does this matter to me whether or not Paul (laughs) treated this situation fickly or if he just changed his mind? What's the big deal? Well, for Paul, this is a really big deal. So I want to see, I want you to see what's going on with Paul in his mind, why this is such a big deal to him. Why does he have to spend three paragraphs explaining that he did not make a fickle decision here? Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So when God says something's going to happen, what happens? That thing. All right, so fill in your first blank on the outline. God's promises are absolutely unfailing because they are based on his never-changing character. So in the Old Testament world, there was a formal um, concept here. We call it in our modern lingo, whimsical. Now, when you hear the word whimsical, you probably first think of some fairy tales, that sort of thing. The idea of whimsical is more related to the notion of doing something on a whim. You ever done something on a whim? What do we mean when we say on a whim? No no forethought, just on the, off the cuff, just, hey, you know what? Free spirit, sort of on the whim, you do something. In the ancient world, gods, deities, were viewed whimsically. So if Zeus woke up today and he was in a bad mood, that's not good for you. He's just, on a whim, he decided to destroy your crops because, you know what? Eh, I just felt like doing it today. See what happens. It's like little kids walk up to an ant bed. And what do little kids do with an ant bed? It's like built in, human nature. What happens? There's a stick, there's a stone, there's a water hose, there is something, and those ants are going to suffer. Why? I just did it on a whim. You know, now some kids do set out, I'm going to look for an ant bed, um, but that's usually not how it works. You're just out there walking, ant bed. Ooh, I could totally destroy these ants today, ruin their lives. Sure, why not? That's how they viewed the gods. The gods in the ancient world were viewed whimsically as though we were just ants. They're walking around. Oh, here's a happy house, happy civilization. Their life is nice. What if I just destroy their crops today? I'm going to kill all their animals. I'm going to give them a disease. Just because it would be funny to watch and see what happens. That's what whimsical means. The Christian God, on the other hand, was viewed in the polar opposite extreme, such that God never changes in his character. Furthermore, second point, God does not vacillate, repent, or change his mind. All of these are direct things in Scripture. God does not do any of these things. He does not change his mind. We're told in James there's no variation. There's no shadow due to change. We're told explicitly in Numbers 23 that God is not a man and that he would change his mind. He does not 
change his mind. We're told explicitly in 1 Samuel 15 that God is not like us, that he would repent, that he would change. He is not like us in this regard. We saw in Malachi that God is the same always. He does not change, declares the Lord. You know Hebrews 13, 7, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. God does not alter in any sense. Now, this is theologically significant to us because He is the same in His saving grace every single day. Think about Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah? Past the well part, he gets swallowed by the well, gets spit up, goes to Nineveh, he preaches to Nineveh, God doesn't destroy the people because they repent, and then Jonah gets mad because God did what God always does. He says, this is what I said. When I was in Israel, before I went anywhere, this is what I said you would do. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You always act this way. The whole point of Jonah is that God doesn't change. His salvation work is always constant in everything that he does. That's why Paul can say all the promises in God, in Jesus, find their yes they all come true. They all happen. So last blank there, God, in that first section, God promises to redeem creation and raise us to new life. That promise is the unshakable reality of the Christian faith. Does Paul have any doubt that this is how the story ends? None whatsoever. This isn't a question. This isn't something he hopes for in the sense that we usually use the term as we we're hopeful about things that probably won't happen but it'd be really nice if it did I, I really hope it works out that way it's not how the new testament uses that word the new testament uses the word more as a, a state of being because of the known future we have hope because of what we know is coming for paul there was no question that on the day of jesus christ all would be revealed, all would be clear. God's unfailing plan from A to Z would be complete and we would stand back, jaw on the floor, amazed at what God had done. There's no variation in this plan. This plan was made before the foundations of the world, that all things would be united in Christ. This is God's plan for all time. So does God ever vary in his plan? Does he say, you know, I wanted to save these people and now I've changed my mind, I'm not going to save these people anymore. Or God says, well, you know, I was going to raise them all from the dead at the end, but I don't want to do that anymore. I changed my mind. They're really a lot worse than I thought they would be. That's not how it works. God's plan is absolutely unchanging. There's no question for Paul that this is how that's going to work. So you see how Paul applies that to his own life. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Which God? The one that doesn't change. The one whose promises are always, yes, it's that God who has taken Paul, Silas, and Timothy and made them ministers. He's anointed us and who has also put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God has placed us in a specific role in that mission and there's no changing, there's no wavering, there's no vacillating in that mission. This is what God has called me to do, Paul is saying, to verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. 
as Paul says lingo like this in other places. Before God, I'm not lying. He's saying God knows the answer. You could call him to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. So under Paul's plans, let's fill these in. Paul faithfully sought to serve the church at Corinth for their sanctification. He's not vacillating in his mission, guys. He's making decisions about what's most useful for that mission. He's not going day to day saying, hmm, should I care about the Corinthian church or should I not care about the Corinthian church? What did God call him to do? Be the minister to the Gentiles. What kind of church is Corinth? It's a Gentile church that Paul planted. There's no vacillation for Paul here. There's no fickleness for Paul here. There's no variation for Paul here. Paul did not change his mind, or Paul did change his mind about the best way to accomplish his goal. But third blank, under that section, Paul was unwavering in his faithfulness to God's mission. So see how he wraps that up. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain... Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So there's a sense, this is what I want you to see. There's a sense in which Paul changed his mind. There's a sense in which Paul was completely, unwaveringly constant in his decision-making process. Do you see the difference? He's got a game plan for this church. He wants them to love the Lord. He wants them to have joy. He wants to complete his mission in that church. There's never a changing, doubtful moment for Paul in that. That's his plan. That's his calling. But some of the steps along that way required him to think. Required him to use critical thinking. Required him to pray. Required him to seek the Lord's face. He vacillated about the specifics of his mission. Not whether or not to do his mission. So I want to put this together and give you a little bit of a primer for how we can think about our plans today. Number one, we should not waver in our course. What I'm saying is there's a path that you ought to be on that should never falter, never change. Now, you probably feel like you've made a lot of, you know, wavy direction in your life. You've faltered, changed steps. I, I am saying that our path should be set. Another way to say this is the next blank. We should not vacillate about whether to pursue the kingdom. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. There should be no question about this part. Do you need to live a life that brings glory to God through the establishment of his kingdom? The answer is yes. You don't have to ask God what his will for your life is in that general sense. If you're not seeking his glory for the name of Jesus, then you're not in God's will. It is God's will that you, as a believer, make disciples, that you pursue the kingdom of God. There's no room for whether or not you're called to do that. That is a guarantee. But 
There's a lot of different ways we might do that. Paul had options. And did he flip a coin to see which one he was supposed to do? No, he thought about it. He rationalized through it. And then he made a decision. And we need to do the same thing. We actively participate in making plans. Last blank. But submit the results to God. This is what we are called to do. There's a lot of options before us. But the only options that should be before us are ways to seek the kingdom of God. That'd be the only kind of option before you. But after that, make a decision. Just choose one. Choose the one you want to do. I, so if, if we set it up right, I could tell you, just do whatever you want to do. So long as you've already limited the options to the ones that seek the kingdom. So it's kind of a trick question. Do what you want to do so long as it's one of the ways to seek the kingdom, but submit the results to God.